0: I don't believe, I always think that all this bullshit about to provoke you a
1: little bit more. This is superstitious logic, it's pure ideology, you know this ecological bullshit, like, uh Hello, welcome to The End of the World, Xanthropocene's episode 12, and today we're talking about Roland Emmerich's uh, 2004... Uh, Sub-masterpiece The Day After Tomorrow.
0: What would you call Emmerich's masterpiece?
1: Independence Day. Without question. Did he do the sequel? I don't know, actually. I respect you all for that. (laughs) Probably. Um, What else did he do? A bunch of... Maybe we talked about A bunch of high-budget stuff that doesn't matter. He's
0: no Toby Emmerich, I will say that. Who's Toby Emmerich? That's probably... Someone, it's probably his brother or something. It's a name you always see on the credits of movies.
1: Well, uh, okay, so I brought up his filmography to, to see what he did. Universal Soldier. Oh, well. yeah. Uh, Tom Berenger, great right? classic. Uh, the 1998 Godzilla. Oh, God. Matthew Proderick. Right. Um, Puff Daddy was, that uh, soundtrack was spot on, though. When he totally <laughs> fucked up Cashmere With Jimmy Page's. Permission though He was in the music video For it God damn it Money talks man uh, He also did 10,000 BC And 2012 Which is another movie We could do At some point Yeah um, White House Down He also directed Stonewall About the Stonewall riots And there was a big uh, hullabaloo about how he Kind of Fucked up the story Did you do, he do He did White House Down Yes yep, He did it. do the Independence Day sequel Okay, so who did Olympus Has Fallen? Not him. Somebody who was uh, trying to ride his wave. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So, yeah, Roland Emmerich, known for these kind of big Hollywood films, and this is definitely a big Hollywood movie. Uh, Two hours, a little bit over two hours long, star studded cast, sort of. Dennis Quaid, Quaid Fucking phones
0: it in In this movie He is yeah. awful and, and And he was coming off his Probably what he's Best known for In 2000 You know uh, In his career Happened earlier Which was uh, In Good Company <laughs> Which is a movie I love Topher Grace Topher for Grace And uh, Scar Joe Um but no, he, he he phones it in in this one, and and you can't hardly blame him. It's not like a super in depth character. He's just like the
1: the dad climatologist. He has a that classic, old archetype. That old chestnut. <laughs> yeah, uh, but he does have the or him and uh, Hall have that weird relationship that you see in movies where the dad is this really well known kind of prosperous scientist. And so his son is of course a genius, mm-hmm. and there's the scene at the beginning where he finds out that Hall got a an F in calculus. And Hall's character is like, "It's because I did all the math in my head and didn't write it down, and the teacher said that I must be cheating." Mm-hmm. Um, and he has that thing of like, "How how could they they count off for you being
0: because you know they're you're smarter than they are."
1: He's it's like, "That's, that's what, what I said," they, and then he gets that like yeah. proud dad smile. He's yeah. like, "Well, what did he say?" Um, so yeah, it's definitely it's this extraordinary scenario that has all these like really old Hollywood tropes in it, like the that weird father son estranged relationship, and um, Hall having a crush on Emmy Rossum's character, and all that stuff is in there. It's just right. there being
0: one black person in the world. Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah. Um, but he's he's very intelligent. Right, right. He's a big nerd, so that. Count through and two, and I, I, guess, I, I, I
0: watched the the YouTube video, uh, "Everything Wrong with," you know, they, the series "Everything Wrong with" uh, day after tomorrow, and it's like twenty minutes long, of the you know the guy pointing out all this stuff we could point out, but I think what'll be more interesting because we we could go through and just like make logical like oh. How can okay. they stay in this tent when it's, you know... So supposedly like
1: grass Tyson, like, actually... Right,
0: right. But I think we have to grade this movie and assess it on its own terms, which is a PG-13 2004 f- blockbuster.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and so, yeah, I, I think we you have to be fair and say, does this movie accomplish its... Goals, you know, with within the context, it sort of suggests just by its very existence. Uh, and I think if if we if we sort of look at it in those terms, it'll be it won't fail as egregiously as it would if we were like comparing it to, you know, persona or something. Uh,
1: comparing it to First Reform, right? Exactly. Yeah, and it does. It works as a blockbuster. I mean. I saw it in the theater, theater And I remember thinking
0: Oh that's super fucked up Which is the highest compliment You can pay a movie When you're a 15 year old boy Yeah
1: Like oh that's Wow Oh that's fucked up you gotta think about that um, But you know It does have moments That are suspenseful And Although like some of them Are kind of dumb Like when they um, You know Dennis Quaid Is with his two buddies And they're They're trying to like Hike to New York From Philadelphia mm-hmm. To save Jake Gyllenhaal And the dude Falls through the window into that building or whatever yep. And he he does the, like, cliffhanger Cut the rope so you can live thing and Are we gonna
0: do cliffhanger?
1: We got it. cliffhanger <laughs> Yeah, we could um, But he, like, cuts the sled loose And you see it fall And it doesn't really look like it falls that far But then when he cuts the rope You're like, oh, like, he's like It's automatically assumed that he's dead I was like, I don't know if he would have even, like Broke his back from that height So he just, he just sprained his ankle Yeah, and he didn't even try to land on his feet He just, like, <laughs> laid like splayed himself out and just cut it
0: yeah that's a weird scene where it's it seems like they're really trying to suggest the sort of <clears throat> you know the built world becomes just as dangerous as the as the natural world it, it, it's just an extension of the natural world and this storm the weather you know is so disruptive that it kind of the built world kind of regresses into this dangerous world wilderness, and so your glass-roofed mall is even more dangerous than
1: whatever a natural <laughs> landscape. Quick sand, whatever it may be. Yeah. Um, and, it, and that is kind of weird, because it, it's doing something that the movie does a lot, which is implying that the, the natural world is always kind of dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, in, in, it, in these cities, and these Urban landscapes of like malls and buildings—they they become even more dangerous because now they're combined with this natural phenomenon. Um, so you have like the the wolves on the ship in the middle of Manhattan,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and that's which is just ridiculous. And that the wolves are like automatically—they automatically turn to hunting humans. Yeah, yeah, A little strange. Because wolves, as we all know, are psychotic serial killers when they come into contact with humans Uh, And it takes Jake Gyllenhaal to fight them off And we'll be referring to him, his character,
0: Gyllenhaal's character, exclusively as Gyllenhaal The remainder of this podcast, at least I will We've got our whiteboard here. What's should position yeah, no, to? I was just just thinking what, about...
1: Let's explain your interruption of everyday life. Interruption of everyday life. So, I, that kind of came to me because I was, I was having trouble finishing this movie because, like I said, it's about two hours long. And it's kind of... A, <laughs> we were talking before we were recording that um, the last, like, 45 minutes, I was just kind of skipping through it because... There are a lot of storylines happening, but none of them are very complicated, and they all take forever to unfold. There's a, there's a shitload of storylines happening in this movie. Yeah, there's a whole there's the stuff with the president, there's the, the wife with the kid in the it's hospital. Like, it's like Crash on Ice. <laughs> yeah, it is. Um, and so I was having trouble finishing it, and I was kind of thinking, like, I had to... Uh, I kept having things come up in my everyday life and, like, wasn't able to watch it, and I was kind of thinking about how... In the film, that's kind of what happens, is you have this, this giant climate catastrophe, and it just interrupts everybody's kind of normal order of business, and that's why, like, Hall and the crew, Hall and his crew are caught in the library, and the kids in the hospital, and, like, everybody's just... The first thing that happens is everyone is massively inconvenienced, mm-hmm. that all the flights are canceled, um, no one knows how, you know, how they're going to get to safety or whatever. Um, So It kind of I like that part of it Because it's talking about how This Climate change Which in the film Is is massively accelerated Is Kind of first and foremost Just a complete interruption Of the status quo And sort of everyday life Um, Which which I think Is good to think about Because In In the real world Even though it's happening Much more slowly That is What is happening And what will continue to happen Is that everyday life Will Not Will change Like there will be a new everyday life. That's kind of what I'm thinking. Right. So you have like...
0: To the point where you it makes you wonder, will people even recognize it as new?
1: Yeah, because we, we'll have time to acclimate to it. So um, Acclimate. <laughs> so uh, you'll have, you know, in a couple of generations, people saying, well, no one lives in that part of California because it's always on fire. And that's just how it is. Right. As if We've if always lived in the castle, that, that sort yeah, of stuff, yeah. um, and it'll just become the new normal in a lot of ways.
0: Right, and that's what makes me. I think I mentioned this on an earlier episode, where it makes me kind of skeptical of claims that a lot of a lot of thinkers make about uh, climate change. That they say that there will come a time when we look back on climate inaction and think how egregious and how, how could we have been so stupid but I think that a lot of their other thoughts suggest otherwise that it will become so integrated that it will just be normal and we won't we won't uh, in a way there won't be anything to deny in the future because it will be so immediate and ever-present that it's be like denying air you know, there's no point in denying something that you that's so integral that you don't even acknowledge its existence. You know, because that's not in question. So I, I don't think there will ever come a time where there's not. You know, where there's people repenting of their former denialism, because it it will just find new sort of, it will find new normals
1: over and over and over. Yeah, yeah. and uh, at the beginning of. William T. Volman's No Immediate Danger which is a volume one of his massive carbon ideologies project. He's writing it, the whole thing addressed to a future person of saying, you know, here's how we thought during my Wallace Wells like uh, alludes to that book. Yeah, and and it's really interesting because he, he'll say things like, in my day I could wake up out of bed, turn to my night table and turn on a lamp and it would be illuminated and then I could go to the sink and turn it on and water would come out and he's like to you in the future this sounds like fairy tale this sounds impossible um, but during my time it was completely normal um, so it's interesting thinking about that stuff in, in terms of, of deep time or at least deep in the sense of looking ahead you know 50, 100 years mm-hmm. that kind of stuff and uh, stuff that you know uh, the generation after us will kind of slowly start to see happen Um, and I think part of
0: and and I don't think that's I don't think
1: that's that sad no I think I think it's incredibly important in a lot of ways like it's kind of vital (laughs) for humanity to keep existing well we
0: were we were talking I can't remember what led us to this but we were talking about Disney World not that long ago and how in, in a to a certain status or type of parent, it becomes a sort of marker of status, yeah, and like you feel like you are not a good parent unless you take your kids to Disney World. And all that's really saying is that that is a marker of normalcy or something um, But if you can sort of take a step back from that and look at it in context and say, this is kind of insane that this is expected and like Disney world by any sort of, uh, standard should, should, you know, should probably not exist. Um, it's just the product of this insane wealth that is the Disney corporation. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's not sad if you can't send your kids to Disney world. No. Um, to a place that shouldn't exist in the first place. it's not sad if you can't have exactly what you want every second of the day. Um, it, it only seems sad um, juxtaposed with you know what we call normal and it's not
1: normal at all. Yeah so something that comes to mind that it's it's a smaller example, but I think it also works is that you know, we're recording this as the the Game of Thrones series finale is is airing or is available, um, and that fact alone is enough to make most people be like, "Oh my god, why aren't you watching?" Um, but just the fact that this Game of Thrones finale is kind of one of the last, or I guess the most recent version of a kind of monoculture, you know, water cooler television thing. Yeah. Um, and because of that, everyone is assuming that everyone else is. Up to speed on it, right? Mm-hmm. But that also is implying that like those people have access to HBO or to some sort of HBO Go, HBO Now account or something like that. Um, so there's a lot of there's a lot of barriers you get to before you get to someone having seen every episode and right. knowing all the characters and stuff like that. Um, So, you know, that's part of the the kind of zeitgeist right now, but it's by no means a a normal thing. Right, and and I
0: think you're getting at there, the sort of cultural subjectivity of normal, you know. Just look at, like, access to Wi-Fi. Like, if you're a middle-class American, you just sort of, or upper-class or or whatever, you suspect everyone in the world has access to the internet. It's like water, like... But, but right, just just you know, look up the statistics on worldwide access to the internet, and and it's not what you think it is. Yeah. Um, and so normal is very different depending on where you're born, um, yeah. and who you
1: are. So because most of it's going to be cellular data anyway. It's not even going to be Wi-Fi because mm-hmm. you know a lot of barriers with. Infrastructure and just not having access to things like that, uh, but in America, it's literally coming out of every. Like we're all getting, you know, brain tumors because it's literally everywhere. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it's interesting to think about um, what normal will look like in the future as opposed to now. Because right now, it's kind of. I find myself a lot of times during the day just thinking about how ludicrous something is, like Disney World or like, the whole Game of Thrones thing. Well, in, in that vein, I think the oppressiveness of
0: the availability, the sort of overwhelming availability of good, like, seductive, just, like, very good entertainment is yeah. is very strange. That Like, the fact that it's normal right now for there to be, say, 80... TV shows that are worth your time
1: yeah that's that's insane and it's it's sort of objectively untrue right like there aren't going to be 80 shows that you're going to love all of them right right but there are
0: 80 shows that have put millions and millions of dollars into their production so they're like I mean, making a sort of wager, a bet on the fact that enough people are willing to invest their time in this many shows. It sort of makes sense when there's three channels. Yeah. You know, but when it's when there's multiple streaming services and cable, and 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 each uh, company is putting money into, you know, five or six or ten shows every season. It's just like, when the fuck are we supposed to watch all this? Do you think? That's what everyone is doing. And maybe that is what everyone is doing. I don't know. Uh, it certainly is with Game of Thrones. And I don't want to, you know, come down on Game of Thrones. I'm sure it's awesome. Or or else people wouldn't watch it. But, uh, yeah, it, I all, all that to say, I think one aspect of how strange our normal is right now is how... Uh, how many options there are in terms of entertainment it's
1: it's crazy yeah and just to to do kind of an experiment with that are you familiar with the show Homecoming is that with uh, uh, uh,
0: like the most famous
1: actress in the world
0: Julia Roberts Julia
1: Roberts yeah have you seen it I have not seen it but I've seen the ads for it so I, I like it's an Amazon original starring Julia Roberts and she got like unless I'm mistaken at the time, it was like the largest contract anyone's ever got for a, a TV or a TV-adjacent show. And I started watching it randomly and, and watched the whole season, and it was I thought it was a pretty good show. Uh, but it's weird to think about, like, Julia Roberts, who, you know, like you're saying, at one point was the actress that was, you know, the, the biggest, one of the biggest movie stars in the world, uh, has this show, and maybe, like... 5% of the population has seen it or something like that mm-hmm. and you know maybe that's an exaggeration but I feel like not a lot of people either A know it exists or B have actually seen an episode of it mm-hmm. um, which is just interesting to think about and part of that is that Amazon has you know trillions of dollars you can just throw resources. money at it.
0: exactly and that's that's sort of what's crazy another example of that I don't know we're, we're sort of Wandering well, on Well yeah we'll get back To the
1: movie at some point But
0: but another example this one that we've been Talking about recently Is The OA Which is yeah. a, an Extremely strange Show and, and a show I'd seen the first I saw the first season of And then just recently Saw that there was A second season And I thought Fucking no one Was asking For Oh maybe I mentioned this In relation to the East One time Yeah Home. Yeah yeah. Like who, who was asking For this second season No one That I know I didn't Talk to anyone About this show in fact, I kept
1: asking, you know, yeah. all my
0: friends, "Have you seen the OA? Have you seen the OA?" Um,
1: and now I've seen all of it.
0: And now you've seen more of it than um, I have.
1: Uh, and it's, I would recommend it. Right, <laughs> and it's, it's and that's what's the,
0: it's a, sh- you know, this show that costs millions of dollars to make, that is probably, you know, kind of weird if you've heard of it,
1: in, to, to most yeah. people, you know, I'll say like, that okay. level of kind of viewer choice is a little bit like startling and weird to think about that we have so many shows. But I think it's also, um, on a positive side, it is kind of good for, you know, creators that they can you know, not everyone finds sort of a home for whatever it is they're working on, mm-hmm. but that so many more people can now do that because Netflix and Amazon and Hulu are making such, you know, ridiculous profits, they can throw money at people and right. make things like that. But the thing is, they still have to have incentive
0: to do that to yeah. throw the money at them, and so I, weirdly, uh, I woke up this morning asking myself this question. I uh, last night I watched one of my favorite movies, which I think I've mentioned on this show before, on this podcast before. Is uh, Junebug? Yeah, uh, two thousand five, directed by a guy named Phil Morrison, who's made like one other movie that no one's ever heard of. I think this movie is a fucking masterpiece. I think it's so much smarter than people get a credit for. Uh, and, and it's really about this sort of liberal conservative tension. Uh, but, but I sort of woke up thinking this morning, if someone were trying to make that movie today, where would it be? Like, would Netflix pick up something like this? would Amazon be able to fund something like this and I, and I don't want to be one of these you know sort of old grumpy men saying uh oh, they don't make them like they used to but I honestly don't think that that particular movie would find a venue today because there's no most of the artsy stuff that you see being funded by Netflix or Amazon or whatever has some sort of name brand Recognition Yeah, You had Amy Adams But she wasn't that Big of a star At the time Yet Ben McKenzie Was the biggest star In that movie At the time From the OC Uh, uh And And the uh, Amazon especially Will Will Fund a movie If the director has You know Name recognition You got uh, uh, Patterson You know Made by Jim Jarmusch And that sort of thing Roma. But who the fuck's Ever heard of Phil Morrison Yeah uh, Roma on Netflix Yeah Uh and so, the, so there are cool, weird things being made and produced by these uh, streaming services, but, but they're not really taking risks. Everyone's going to watch the new Alfonso, or anyone who cares about film is going to watch the new Alfonso Cuaron movie. If you're like me, you're going to watch the new uh, Noah Baumbach movie, you know, the Netflix made, yeah. uh, the Meyerowitz stories. Uh, but, but all the point is, all of those movies have director recognition who you know you have this movie Junebug directed by a nobody who's picking that up in 2019 I don't know but I'm just really glad that that movie got
1: in before uh, the uh, the big shift happened yeah and even some of the smaller movies we've looked at like with uh, First Reform like Paul Schrader is kind of a known quantity he can you know he has some pull behind his name right um, and with, like, uh, Night Moves. I can't remember the director's name. Kelly Reichert. Yeah, Reichert. So she, you know, had made a few pictures and had built a reputation so she yeah. could get some funding. But even then, like, the model of you make the film, you take it to, like, film festivals or whatever, and it comes out in a limited release and then right. comes out in home video or whatever is not... It's still around, but it's, it's not gonna work, I would imagine, as well as it could have in the past. Yeah. Whereas now it's I would imagine if I were a director and I having you know knowing nothing about what that would be like, I would want to get whatever I was making on one of those streaming services first. Like that would be my alpha goal would be like I hope Netflix will buy this right. and then distribute it. Um, but like I said I have no idea what any of that looks like economically. I, I, tend just to, I tend to
0: trust Charlie Kaufman and he is weirdly one of the most pessimistic voices on, on this whole sort of issue you know gone are the days he says of you know he writes this, these quirky ass super sm- smart movies being John Malkovich adaptation Eternal Sunshine and they are brilliant and award winning and successful commercially and then he can't make. Well, he make he gets money for Connecticut, New York, and then you know this big shift to streaming happens, and he can't get uh, Anomalisa funded. Yeah, he had to crowdsource that shit. Like that uh, to me, that's crazy. To have won Oscars and and clearly be one of the most talented screenwriters alive to have to
1: crowdsource here. And it kind of it makes me. And this can maybe get us back to talking about the day after tomorrow. Oh yeah, which is why we're here. <laughs> I but, forgot uh, about that. Um, but I don't. I wonder if the way that we think about movies is, and I guess it would have to be, is different from how like younger people would think about movies, like just through different means of distribution, different ways we think about them. Because just thinking about Charlie Kaufman, when I saw that Charlie Kaufman made a movie a claymation movie or stop motion or whatever it's called um, and it's about this weird thing I was like that sounds awesome like I'm excited about that like but I could see some people seeing that and and thinking like what the fuck is this like it's it's, is this a kids movie (laughs) like what the hell is happening Um, and part of that is like the context but another part is just like when it just pops up on Netflix and you've never heard of it, you might watch it for like ten minutes and be like, "This sucks," and then turn it off. Right. Um, well, because you didn't have to go
0: to the video store and rent it along with maybe one other movie. It's yeah. sitting there, a click away, along with eight million other movies. You know, uh, yeah, it's really a
1: totally different thing. Going to the to the video store and being like, "Oh man, I hope they have it," but you got there too late and it's like all the new copies It's all checked out. Check yeah. out. You no, know, I got to uh, wait till next week to watch it. Right, uh,
0: Corey, our friend Corey and I were talking about. Um, I, I was at the the local library last year, Limeball Library, and their DVD collection is fucking amazing. They've got like the Criterion and like I mean everything. You know everything's free. just check it out. And I thought, had this been here when I was a kid, I would have seen everything that I ever wanted to see. And then, uh, you know, I went home and I was I was on Canopy, the streaming service Canopy, which is the best one that I know about. And it has, you know, everything has criteria. And I thought, had I been 14 years old now in 2018, 19, I would have seen everything. But then you sort of, I sort of, sort of check that logic, like, if it's that available, is it the same amount of sort of alluring?
1: Yeah. You don't. You know. I don't know. It becomes more kind of mundane of like. Yeah. Oh well. Yeah. Of course, I have access to literally anything. So. But but like a
0: a film buff, you know, fifteen year old will never today will never know the joy of like perusing Hastings for the hundred millionth time and finding. A used copy of, you know, uh, you know, a cheap copy of The Seventh Seal on Criterion, Yeah. you know, in the foreign film section of Hastings, where it's like, oh, I have to buy this, and then you go home and you watch it four times when it's just part of the streaming service, yeah. and you can watch it as many times as you want, whenever you want, on your fucking phone.
1: It's sort of, uh, it's, this is going to be like a real kind of like old man statement, but it's kind of the, the, joy of missing out sort of, you have FOMO, right? The fear of missing right. out, but I think there's a kind of a joy. There's in, a JOMO. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you, if you don't automatically have everything you want all the time, that, then when you get it, you're like, Oh my God, I found this. Right? right. Um, so yeah. Anyway, that to get back to the day after tomorrow, um, not a film that I would have ever been like. Oh my God! They have the day after tomorrow. I but, did. I did see it in the theater when I was whenever, when it came out. So I guess I was like seventeen or something. It was pretty kind of ubiquitous. It was just kind of all over the place. It was a big it was, deal. It was a, it was a big release. Yeah, I remember it was one of the go-to films for my high school teachers when they didn't want to teach. They'd be like, chemistry teacher would be like, "We're going to put on the day after tomorrow there's or no, October Sky." Yeah, there's
0: no sex. There's no. You know, there's not a lot of cursing or anything. It's just... It's safe.
1: There's some real, like, violent deaths, but that that's about well, it. Well, this is America. I mean, yeah. <laughs> um, so... It's good old-fashioned fun. So that was our kind of everyday rant. Uh, one thing that we've already kind of mentioned a little bit is how... Uh, we've talked about slow violence, and that's Rob Nixon's whole idea that a lot of environmental violence is hard to observe because it happens on such a drawn-out scale, um... So, you know, Fukushima happens, and all this radiation is released, and so we don't really know what that looks like, but it has this long tail that goes for, you know, thousands, millions of years. Um, In the film, what happens instead is that that's sped up. Right. It's like Day After Tomorrow is to climate change, what Fukushima is to just, like, time-lapse photography. Like, you could just, oh, just just speed it up, and we will see the effects. It's like taking a picture of your dog every day, (laughs) and then you speed it up. Um, and, and there's there's almost there's almost like kind of winks
0: to that in the movie where you know he says this could happen in a hundred years could happen in a thousand years and then it happens the next day so right. it's like maybe them sort of you know filmmakers sort of saying like yeah we we know this is a little
1: bit ridiculous but yeah. we gotta have a movie and it's based uh, I didn't do a whole lot of reading about the actual science but it's based on Shakespeare's, actual theory uh, <laughs> oh what yeah <Okay. laughs> Um, Othello, actually. Uh, but it's based around this, uh, you know, the thing about the ocean currents. is sort of, a th- you know, a thing that's out there, but, you know, by no means would it ever happen in three days or whatever. Um, and it's sped up for dramatic effect. Yeah. Sort of like, um, you know, a book I really like, most of the Exit West, that speeds up human migration across borders through this kind of magical device. Um, so in the film, all this is... It, and they never really explain why this happens It's just kind of like, surprise <laughs> here, yeah. here comes the, the ice or whatever Surprise, motherfuckers Yeah, and so uh, All this happens extremely quickly And the northern hemisphere has these giant storms And it freezes And all hell breaks loose All hail breaks loose <laughs> uh, That is, that is kind of weird The opening scene, or one of the opening scenes In Tokyo, which is weird Because at the beginning of the film They're jumping around all over the world like a, a lot of other movies, if you if you've ever seen Armageddon, that, it's like that, or The Core, which seen is the Armageddon, core. yeah, yeah, with yeah, except say, the other direction, yeah, except yeah. you go in instead of out. Um, so, yeah, you have um, just you know all hell breaking loose again um, with the hellstorm in Japan. And the guy like on the phone with his wife or whatever and gets killed. by Yeah. They like endear
0: the you deals. to him real quick. He's like talking to his wife, but he's, well, he's also, like getting like,
1: hammered at the bar after <laughs> yeah, work. You're like, Oh, I relate to this guy. I hate my wife and I like getting drunk. And then he dies. You're like, Oh, that could have been me. <laughs> <Yeah>. Fuck nature. <laughs> um, yeah. And you know, all these other things like the helicopters in Scotland or wherever they get frozen and the dude gets frozen and it's all dramatic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, general kind of disaster movie stuff of, like, Major City X gets destroyed by natural freak accident Y. And And that's sort of in
0: in, uh, Children of Men, too, just
1: alluded to. You know, it's like Washington, D.C., New York City. (laughs) Um, But a lot of that is is sort of implied to be man-made. Yeah. Or at least, well, a lot of it, like, atomic bombs in Africa and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, whereas here it's all nature all the time. Yeah, I, I really like in
0: the day after tomorrow. I mean, sort of ironically, I guess the there's there's some product placements that are uh, kind of interesting. Like the one I noticed most was the wind. There's a Windies that is like. Uh, iced over and <laughs> almost it's frosted over frost it's frosted frosty over. yeah uh, but but it's almost like the the point of these product placements is to suggest like see we better uh we better shape up when it comes to climate change or no more Wendy's <laughs> no more know. Baconator exactly never mind the fact that like the culture that makes something like Wendy's normal is like the whole problem. Yeah. So like, no, you can't have Wendy's. Even if we start acting correctly uh, or or more, you know, uh, ecologically minded, <laughs> Wendy's has to go. I think we could yeah. we can agree to that. Uh, but it, but I think it is this this. Uh, going back to the the issue of like normalcy and interruption of everyday life, they take these markers of everyday life like Wendy's restaurant to suggest that these the you know this crazy weather will eliminate in some way your what you think is normal and what yeah. you have access to
1: and it reminds me of something that kind of happened in in popular culture in the past week, which was uh, uh did you see? on John Oliver's show, Bill Nye, the yes. Bill Nye thing. Here's yeah. some fucking
0: Mentos and a Diet Coke or whatever it
1: is. <laughs> He's like, it was fun teaching about photosynthesis, but now the world's on fire. <laughs> yes. um, but he he said something in that clip that I thought was, it, I take it as being just like 100% truth, where um, he says, well, you know, we have to do something, we have to make these major changes, and he says... Is it is it gonna be free or like is it gonna be expensive? Yeah, of course it is, but it has to get done. Mm-hmm. Um, and just that kind of attitude of like, like you're saying, like Wendy's is part of the problem. Like, mm-hmm. sorry, you can't have Wendy's for lunch every day, but that's just kind of the and price you pay. It, and it's not it's not Wendy's, and it's not McDonald's, and it's not
0: Walmart, and it's not Costco. It is. The broad ideological sort of orientation to the world that normalizes and and integrates that kind of thing that that sort of allows masses of people to call Wendy's and McDonald's and Costco and Walmart and whatever the fuck and Exxon Mobil normal. Uh, yeah. So it's, it's not. It's it, there's no. I mean, they are to some extent. I mean, they are. Mass polluters and and destroying the human body and the environment and all these things,
1: um, but it's bigger than that. I think yeah. um, all those things could exist far more ethically than they do. It's just because of the you know the profit motive that you can't it to exist more ethically would be to lose profits, mm-hmm. and that's sort of the cardinal sin. Under capitalism Right You know If we're missing out on profits Then something's wrong Right Um, So it is normal And it's weird that like You know I love Wendy's And I have a weird sort of And a lot of people have this With like McDonald's and stuff You have like a weird Like childhood connection Of like you remember Like eating a Wendy's hamburger With your parents or whatever And it's Mm -hmm. like Makes you feel good on the inside And it's really deeply fucked up to have that kind of emotional It's like we talked
0: about in in an earlier episode about how Disney wants to own your childhood. Yeah. It's just so you'll buy more shit.
1: Yeah. It's like going back to, to going to Disney World, right? People go and they pay, they spend exorbitant amounts to buy these tickets, and then they spend extra so their kids can have breakfast with a couple of, like, underpaid... Uh, college kids dying of heat stroke dressed as characters. <laughs> yes. Um, and so they can take a picture with their kid who's like not old enough to form memories. Right. Um, and, and for what? So they can put it on social media and people be like, oh, how great. What great parents. Mm-hmm. Because that makes you a good parent somehow.
0: Pseudo, pseudo events. Another <laughs> theme of this podcast.
1: Hyper normalization.
0: Oh, yeah. Um... um <clears throat> Well, I guess another sort of issue we we should talk about that we've touched on in some of the other films is the sort of dialing it up to 11 in terms of the theme of man versus nature, where it's like nature, capital N, is just like this fucking beast, this monster attacking humanity, which I believe starts with good intentions, but... Kind of subverts itself in a way where it create, you know, it, it sort of creates, take Day After Tomorrow, for example, when you have this like cold, this encroaching, you know, in quotes, cold <laughs> sort of chasing the characters. And, yeah. and for some reason, the doors. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> the door stops the it. Like, what the fuck? Uh, anyway, it, it's seen as this other. You know this this thing beyond humanity is sort of encroaching on them. It's chasing them the way a tornado comes after you, or a you know a rabid dog chases you, or a wolf in the city. Um, and and so while while the movie you know clearly has good intentions about bringing environmental concerns to you know a large number of people's minds, that sort of uh, representation of nature as this wildly other thing encroaching upon us really kind of just it it, it kind of just strengthens this age old binary of man and nature, and sort of re, it just reinforces that harmful otherness to where and, and obscures that um, that gray area that is so important for understanding the. Uh, relationship and the sort of the interplay between m- that is man and nature. Obviously, man is a part of nature, um, and nature is a concept kind of invented by man. It's uh, certainly not as stark as your seventh grade English teacher tells you when you say, Oh, the call of the wild is man versus nature, you know, to, to build a fire, right? Nature wanted that
1: man to die. Mm. Uh, <laughs> So, we asked him, and he said that. So, in uh, the way I think, what I think the film, The Day After Tomorrow, is trying to say, or what it's trying to do, I think, is set up this, this man-versus-nature dichotomy, but in a way that nature is so kind of overpowering that it must be respected. Sort of like fear coming out the other side as respect. Yeah. Um, which is fine, I guess. I don't think it necessarily works because you still come out, um, as being like, you know, damn nature, you scary. Like how am right. I, how are we going to deal with this right. new ice age? Um, as opposed to trying to live in anything like harmony, uh, with nature, which is, uh, you know, part of the human problem since the beginning of, you know, uh, civilization. Um, how do we quote unquote manage, Nature for our benefit, and I think the character, the vice president,
0: who then becomes the president in in the film, mm-hmm. he mentions he specifically uses in his final speech on c- climate change at the end, mm-hmm. which is perfect. Uh, on the Weather Channel. I on the it's... Weather Channel, yeah. Uh, he uses the word humility in his speech, and I really, I dug that uh, because I think that again we keep bringing up the idea of dominion in this podcast and I think that uh, for my money is maybe the biggest maybe one of the biggest obstacles in in uh, kind of getting people to understand the, the, the reality of climate change um Breaking down that, you know, seemingly unbreakable fortress of ideology that is sort of religious, the religious idea of dominion, uh, and and realize having some humility and realizing that you and and human beings are not the center of the fucking world, um, and that you are just a one species among many, subject to in the case of the film the wrath it's a, and that's a misleading I don't want to say the wrath of nature because that implies some sort of like vengeance AGT. you know no it's not it's just it's not even indifference because indifference is something that humans can have it's just it just is you know the uh, mother Nature's nature is a real big <laughs>
1: right uh said Dennis Quaid um <laughs> But I'm glad you mentioned that Because that that scene I think Probably my favorite In the film Which sucks Because it's like 30 seconds right at the end Um, But you have the vice president Who the whole film Is like This is all bullshit How do we know That any of this is true And Is modeled Purposefully I forget where I read this To look like Dick Cheney, and he does. He's got the glasses and, like, the, yeah. the gray... Uh, he shoots that guy at one head. point, yeah. yeah. he shoots his uh, friend in the face <laughs> and then makes him apologize to him. Um, <laughs> so, he's sort of modeled after Dick Cheney, and since it's, you know, it's filmed in 2004, uh, this is in the, the heart of the, the Bush years and the Bush administration... I'm not uh, sure
0: the Bush years had a heart.
1: <laughs> Damn. <laughs> Deep, dude, dude, I gotta... I gotta sit down, uh, but no, there's um. I forgot what I was gonna say. So, you you have you know right in the middle of the Bush administration and the Bush Bush administration response to to climate change was just fuck all, like nothing at all, um, you know, pray it and the gay away basically. So, um, in. in in having this character that kind of looks like Dick Cheney has the same sort of attitude and then at the end you have this massive reversal of of um, you know like you said using the word humility uh, which I think is just an attitude toward nature that human beings almost never have unless they're faced with some sort of catastrophe like some rich Hollywood producer asshole his house gets destroyed by a landslide he's like I never realized how truly small I was right <laughs> things like that um and I think that's part of why the film speeds up this catastrophe so much, is because unless some people are just kicked in the teeth with it, they're never going to get the point. And, and it's just sort of making me realize,
0: one, one, after I just watched, after I just finished the movie, one criticism I had right off the bat was, there's no real resolution to the movie. It's, it, the movie does not, <laughs> does not say, oh, you know, band together, work hard, and you can sort of reverse these effects. The weather just kind of fucking changes on its own. There's no, it's yeah. nothing people do to solve the problem, they just wait it out. Um, and so, but in light of this sort of conversation we're having, it's kind of nice. It's sort of, there's nothing you can do uh, except understand your humble place uh, in the world. And you are at the mercy of forces larger and more powerful than yourself. Um, which, uh, again, just in that context is good. In the, in the larger context of climate change, um, I think it's not enough. You know, the big message of the enlightened in The Day After Tomorrow is to hold tight. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Gyllenhaal Ch- is screaming... For everyone to just stay where they are, not do anything, wait it out, which he gets from his, you know, yeah. his expert father tells him that.
1: So the the people that know are just telling everybody to do nothing. With Dennis, Dennis Quaid, meeting with the president, he says, well, we have to evacuate, you know, these states. And the president's like, well, what about all the states above that? And he's like, they're already gone or right. something like that. Like, they need to pray or whatever. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, there's a whole attitude of just like, Writing it off, I mean, like let's just everyone relax and hunker down, and hopefully you'll survive. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, and so, and so that could be playing into the
0: humility theme. But if you read it in another context of like, uh, what I was saying is that it's not enough. I think in reality, it's not just about waiting it out. It's not just about doing nothing. It's about actively, proactively changing. The negative behaviors. It's not about just not having negative behaviors. It's about having positive orientation.
1: Yeah. And just to talk about the the narrative scope of the film a little bit, you touched on this a little. Um, so when we were talking about Children of Men, I was talking about how I was really into the the world building that they did and, and creating this, you know, London of this uh, future that's so dark and. Dystop, dystopic and all that sort of stuff. Uh, I can never decide if I want to say dystopic or dystopian. I don't know what the difference is. <laughs> Whichever one you prefer, that's the oh, one I want to leave. So there's that. And I was, but, you know, you can kind of forgive not learning a whole lot about that world because the narrative that you're in with uh, Theo and, and the, the first pregnancy and however many years... Is the most important thing going on in that world at that time, um, in a lot of you know, in a lot of ways. But with the day after tomorrow, um, like you say at the end of the movie, we're left with this new ice age. The northern hemisphere is uh, is frozen. Like the world now exists below the equator. It seems like, um, which is a really interesting, kind of future science fiction thing to think about. But the narratives that were in In the movie Aren't especially important <laughs> When you think about it You have uh, Quaid is like Weather expert Ocean current expert But even he's like Not super He's not the only one By any means So it's yeah. him It's his son And the people Like I guess maybe New York You can think of New York As being kind of A character in the film as People um, yeah. Surviving At the end You see him being Like hella lifted Off the tops of skyscrapers And yeah. shit like that um, but the, the stories we're seeing um, Maybe minus the U.S. president stuff And like forgiving all of Latin America's debt And that's why the, Which is like There's no more United States Like the, fuck the debt Like you yeah, don't need who, to worry about it anymore
0: Who's there to forgive? Yeah. Um,
1: but that's probably the most On a world scale like important But all the other ones are just sort of Weird little interpersonal stories That well, aren't very important Right And And um I sort of jokingly compared
0: it to Crash, but in, in a way, something we, we mentioned earlier is <clears throat> there's a real split, I think, in movies that deal with climate change between kind of a sociological representation of climate change and like a psychological representation, like an individual psychological representation of it. Um, and so you have this Multiple storyline, uh, and again, they're all shitty, you know. But you, you'd have a uh, Hall and Dennis Quaid and his wife, and then the president, and then these people, these scientists in the Arctic, and the astronauts, you know, <laughs> who were
1: safe and just hanging out, just sort of watching it out. go down.
0: Yeah. Uh, so you have all these different storylines, and in a way, it's a little bit admirable, and it makes me think. About something you and I have discussed before—is it? I think it's discussed in uh, *Slow Violence*. About well, it's discussed in *Slow Violence* and in *The Great Derangement*. What Gauche sort of criticizes in in uh, a sort of normal status quo definition of the novel the sort of trope that he calls individual moral adventure. Um, is this in The Great Derangement* or, or Slow Violence, or is it both? Because it's making me think of Nixon's worry. critique of uh, John Updike and Updike's conception of the novel. Um, I'm pretty sure that Ghosh talks about it. I, I know Ghosh talks in about individual moral adventure. Yeah. So may, so maybe there's some overlap there. Uh, but the, the point I'm trying to make is that I mean, as as clumsily as it does it and as, you know, the dialogue is just, you know, not believable or anything, but that's not the... The Day After Tomorrow is not trying to be a psychologically insightful film the way Night Moves or First Reformed might be trying to be and are in a a, a lot of ways. Um, It's trying to represent huge swaths of people, uh, and and that's why it has these multiple storylines. And and I think if you read Nixon you read Ghosh you can sort of see why uh, as shittily as it's done in this movie it is an admirable attempt to escape the sort of solipsism of uh, 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 you know subjective psychological representation because in a way if that's all that there is in the world of art in the world of culture it, it creates this inescapable subjectivity and it's just like you're just you know, you get artists and filmmakers who are just representing the way some white guy feels about things. Like who who cares? But in the day after tomorrow you have you have a the, the subject is social. It is political. It's not trying to it's not really trying to connect with you on a psychological level. There is no real entry point for you. Um the way there is so clearly in First Reform, like clearly Toler is your—you get insights into his mind and you sort of identify with him—and there's there's none of that, and that's fine because this movie is about a social, environmental problem, uh, not necessarily about a psychological problem. I mean, obviously there are. Psychological aspects to this problem, but that's not what this movie is about, and so and so it's not a
1: fault of the movie for for being sprawling. Uh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And so you have that kind of, and I think it's important to delineate between being a sort of uh, individual kind of internal psychological narrative and being just like completely navel-gazing about it, right? Because mm-hmm. <clears> at <throat> First Reformed, we're in Toller's head, and we're seeing things kind of more or less through his eyes, but it's not, you know, vapid, or, or, you know, there's a lot of depth there, and a lot of kind of universal ideals that we can kind of get out of it. Right. An
0: individual is an embodiment of, really, I mean, the metaphors, he, he's kind of embodiment of the earth, and so it uses an individual to tell a much bigger story. Uh, but yeah I, yeah, I think you're right, because like Ghosh's point is like uh, his critique of Updike is, you know, Updike sort of says the novel should be an individual moral adventure. It's about one person's journey and the shit they learn along the way. And he says that in an article where he's critiquing the novel Cities of Salt, which is a sort of I think maybe you've read some of this book, yeah. but I, I haven't read this book. Uh, but it's a sprawling kind of sociological, um, uh, and I, I think Ghosh says kind of a, in some ways it feels like nonfiction. It's so like sociologically informative yeah. um, as opposed to entertaining. Um, yeah. And so Updike is critiquing and saying it's, it's, not, it's not even really a novel because it's not about it's not about uh, one person experiencing obstacles and overcoming them which is such a boring I mean that's it's fine if that's what your book is but to limit what a novel is to, to that is just kind of strange
1: yeah and with the the parts of cities of salt that I've read um, it's there are characters and there's plot and all that but it, it's kind of written in a almost kind of documentary style like you're you're seeing these large things kind of unfold and it's about you know the discovery of oil and in, in saudi arabia and you know the british coming in and trying to take it into the society that um you know in those areas was very kind of insular and very kind of tribal but they also you know were used to traveling in caravans long distances and they had these um you know, sort of sets of, of uh, values and, and ways of looking at the world that come into contact and clash with these sort of Western European ideals of, like, we got to get this oil out of the ground because we need it to, you know, fuel war machines and we want to make profit off of it and all that sort of stuff. Um, so, like you are saying, in a lot of ways, that's, f- you know, vastly more interesting to me than... You know, rabbit run or whatever. Whether or, whether or not Rabbit Angstrom, you know, gets to fuck everyone he wants to. Yeah, which is like that's cool, right? But and I, you know, I like plenty of stuff like that, like um, Portnoy's Complaint by Philip Roth, which is very much a kind kind of yeah, yeah. one man's uh, journey to fuck everything that moves. Um, you know, what I, you know, I love that book and I've read it a couple times, but at the same time, to you know, I don't need to say that 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 Updike's Critique of what a novel is, and that is stupid, <laughs> short sighted, and is is discounting a lot of really great uh, writing that doesn't fit into whatever he thinks the novel is, and right,
0: even even some canonical stuff. Like you look at like the like Sister Carrie and things like that is so sociological, yeah, and like who, who would say that that's not a novel, you know?
1: Um, yeah, and some people say that's more important, right? So we uh, when we were doing There Will Be Blood we are talking about um, Upton Sinclair writing oil in the jungle and he's he's writing novels but he, they're not individual moral adventures they're sort of sociological um exposés yeah I mean yeah um, of trying to sort of point out and in some way work towards solving these societal ills right um which I think is a lot of people would agree that's very important Um, So is it more important that your novel have a realistic sounding narrator who has real life things and you write what you know? Um, Because, you know, I took a lot of creative writing classes in like undergrad and you hear these cliches over and over again of like only trouble is interesting, right? If your story doesn't have a conflict, then it's not a story. And one of them was always uh, write what you know. Yeah. So if you don't know something and understand it, don't write about it, but that's kind of boring for one um and also like in a lot of ways it's how you get to know something is you're writing about it and you're trying to explore it in those different ways um so you know you don't know what a social utopia looks like but that doesn't mean you can't dream one up you can't try to explain one to somebody yeah, it's almost like
0: write what you know is hopelessly naive in its assumption that you can know anything <laughs> you know, yeah, It's like, like,
1: what do I really truly fully understand? Write,
0: write what you don't know because that's your only option. That would be my uh, advice.
1: Yeah, otherwise what are you going to write about? Like, Then you do get these navel-gazing novels of like, I only know what it's like to be a white man with this set of values and this set of urges and these goals. Right. Um, and, then, and then it's boring as all hell. Mm-hmm. Uh, for most people, some people. Well, it, it,
0: you know, maybe to the contrary, it's it's not boring. It's very entertaining, but it's meaningless, and, and it's just it's you're just cashing in, like almost like stand up comedy on just like recognition. It's just like, oh, I do that, you know, <laughs> like that the uh, Vine. Yeah. yeah, I do that. <laughs> um, yeah, but but beyond that, it's like, oh, I see I see myself in that. So, uh, wouldn't it be more interesting if you sort of, uh, learned to see yourself in another context, uh, or had to sort of problematize your own conception of yourself? Wouldn't that be a more, uh, interesting experience rather than just having your experience affirmed and bolstered and, and you know, echoed back
1: at you over and over and over again? Right, right. Um, so, uh, this you know, makes me think of. Yeah, this <laughs> makes me think of girls for some reason. The show girls for yeah. like a lot of like a lot of critiques that people and that I myself have had of the show of like calling Lena Dunham the voice of a generation and she completely captured this this era. I, I'm not sure that been, that's wrong. She's the voice of a generation. Now whether the generation has of a segment of a anything to of say, a yeah. yeah. Or, um, <laughs> And that's why, you know, labels like that are inherently dumb, like The Great American Novel, The Voice of a Generation, all that, that sort of shit. Anyway, a movie that's not uh, A Voice of a Generation or The Great American Novel... A uh, Roland Emmerich is the voice...
0: the voice of the it, You know,
1: it, and so I say that, but Roland Emmerich, his films have made a shit ton of money. I mean, this and also Independence Day, yeah, which, you know, came out in, what is it, 96, 97, something like that, and... Uh, you know, had Will Smith and Jeff Goldblum and all this and, and made all this money. Had a sequel for some reason, like two decades later. Um, but I remember, you know, as a kid, so that movie comes out when I'm like seven, and I think it's like the coolest thing I've ever seen. They blew up the fucking White House. It's amazing. Um, aliens. And fighter jets. Uh, so he's very entrenched in kind of the, the American zeitgeist of the past three decades even though he's German is that right? I don't know he's he's not American I don't think I'm pretty sure he's German um, but he, he kind of found this niche as big blockbuster action movie guy kind of like a, a lesser Michael Bay
0: yeah um, yeah uh, you gotta wonder <sighs> Independence Day is certainly more more guilty of this but this sort of conflating, uh, like we talked about a bunch with uh, the Clint Eastwood Autour Week, hmm. um, this sort of conflating an Independence Day of like patriotism with these larger, sort of clearly political issues. Um, I, I, is there are there a shitload of uh, American flags and day after tomorrow I can't remember
1: seems like the type of movie where there would be I don't remember but it's a very kind of american centric film just because we're following the president and you know yeah. all the characters we care about or are supposed to care about are in right. not only in the United States but in big cities right in New York City yeah which
0: as something we mentioned and we've got written uh, on your whiteboard here is at the end this interesting kind of Inversion of what what will be the reality, honestly, uh, of climate changes, uh, you know, between the first and third worlds, where at the end of uh, the day after tomorrow, you have Americans uh, moving south. the The final address from the now president on the Weather Channel is coming from Mexico, um, and so all of America has either died from this catastrophe or become a climate refugee um and again I think that fits with the theme of humility but but it is interesting like I said because the most vulnerable areas of the world are the poorest areas of the world yeah and and likely in a real world scenario the refugees would be coming from the
1: poorest places yeah and it's kind of that's something the film does it's kind of clever is it it flips that reality like you're saying and so all Americans have to go to Mexico and I assume you know people in in Asia are going to India or Africa or wherever they'll be heading um and so you have that 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 reversal happening and what stuck out to me is in that that address when the the now president um Says, is oh, well, they've shown us great hospitality, and I'm, you know, eternally grateful for it, or whatever. And it kind of makes you think about in real life where that kind of climate refugee exodus is going in the opposite direction, like away from these equatorial places and, and toward the north or toward the, the far south. And uh, the reaction from those governments is very much the opposite it's build the wall, you know, send these people back, keep them out, that sort of stuff. Um, and just kind of the like patriotism mixed with this like rabid nationalism and chauvinism and and selfishness ultimately um, is kind of depressing. So at the end of the day after tomorrow, when it's this hopeful note of like it's okay, Mexico let us in, like they, they've got our back, and knowing that in in real life it's like so far from the truth of what is actually occurring now, um, and even in like children of men where you have all the Fuji's being rounded up right? yeah in cages yeah. Um, so yeah, it was, it was interesting to, to see that and to think about what it will look like to have climate refugees being turned back or rounded up or whatever it may be because you know it's, it's on its way um, I remember talking to a, a class once about Bangladesh and how it'll be one of the countries hardest hit and already is and so you have Dhaka in Bangladesh. It's home to these millions and millions and millions of people in the most densely populated uh, cities in the world. Um, and before long, it'll be mostly uninhabitable for a number of reasons. Um, so where do those people go? Right, They're displaced to where, exactly? Um, you know, I'm of a mind that to welcome those people in and, and work toward not fully integrating them but have them in their culture integrate into society and create whatever new forms might come out of that is you know I think it's a big opportunity and a big productive opportunity to have these kind of new ways of living new ways of being in the world new cultures new sort of uh, you know diasporas developing Um, but most people see that and think like hell no get these brown people out of here Um, you know keep off my lawn (laughs) yeah yeah
0: Yeah, it seems, uh, I I didn't, it wasn't something I was conscious of before we talked about these movies, Um, even the ones I'd seen, how, just how prevalent the uh, representation of climate refugees is. Um, And even if it's not directly depicted, it's sort of implied in a lot of these movies, Um, obviously, Day After Tomorrow Children of Men it's maybe the maybe the I think we talked about how like immigration is kind of maybe the main issue of that movie Um, yeah uh, I mean along with fertility and and that sort of thing Uh, one one kind of small thing from the Day After Tomorrow that stuck with me that I, I can't really figure out is the scene where in the library and it's just some random guy uh, he's like clutching a bible Oh but yeah. it's clear that he's not a Christian and then a woman asks him why he's clutching the bible and I think you get the impression that maybe she is a Christian um, and he explains that the bible is like you know, the most printed book in the world, most circulated, or whatever, and so this this uh, representation of of the age of reason. The, it's it's the, the Gutenberg Bible.
1: Yes, yeah, the dawn of the age of reason. The written word is man's greatest accomplishment.
0: Does anyone buy that? I mean, I don't at all. What To me, to me, it, to me it feels write. like this weird attempt to to merge the Enlightenment and Christianity which are very much
1: at odds um, yeah it, I, I hate that shit like I, it, this is it's related but it's kind of tangential is, is this idea of western civilization is sort of the home of all things good like that's where all of the good things came from so right. reason and the written word and all the shit so in the film the guy's got the Gutenberg Bible and he's protecting it because they're burning books to stay warm and he's like I have to make sure no one burns this because it's you know, a link to our you know amazing past in the West, and the girl's like, "Oh, do you think God's going to save us?" And he's like, "I don't even believe in God, mm-hmm. but this is a sign of reason." And, all. and so
0: it, uh, it's like, "No, it's it's really not." Yeah,
1: and <laughs> so on a few levels, that's real kind of stupid. Where you have the idea, this whole idea of, of reason versus belief or whatever it would be, Faith, and then yeah, and then also just the kind of. Western attitude of like this is what's Important what the west has accomplished Like never mind that you know We've been a we're in a forever War in Iraq near Places that were literally the cradle of human Civilization we've bombed the fuck it's out like, of them Oh you mean the civilization that just led to This uh, imminent climate
0: catastrophe <laughs> yeah. This is the one you want to hold you mean, on you to mean
1: The reason that that led us to this point Yeah right. great um, the, the, You're talking about the civilization That led to Wendy's <laughs> you know that, that culminated In Wendy's yes. That was the height Of human <laughs> yes. existence Was it's The all chocolate down, frosty It's all down
0: From Wendy's
1: Yeah Um Yeah that, that Baconator just, Really The Baconator Um <laughs> You create a timeline That goes from like Like Gutenberg Through Rousseau And Those John like Locke Socrates. And all, yeah. Einstein And then you get to the Baconator <laughs> At the very end Um and yeah, that guy, those characters are not, they don't matter, right? Like, that's kind of the only time we see them. Yeah, I think uh, that, that YouTube video, Everything Wrong with Day After
0: Tomorrow, sort of points out, he, he says, couldn't this uh, dialogue have gone to one of the main characters? You know, some of yeah, like, someone's really we, we care weird. about a little bit.
1: Yeah. Um, so yeah, that, I noticed that, and it is, it is kind of, it was really strange. And it's a weird thing to slip yeah. in. Of like, what they're sad for isn't the death of all the what I assume is millions of people, and like loss of half the planet to this new ice age. You're like, ah, but reason, the Enlightenment—that's what we, that's what we've lost. Yeah. And and
0: this is a small thing too, but at the end, the fact that everyone that has been saved or that has survived is like. top of skyscrapers, yeah. to me it just made me think, like, is the message, like, oh, good thing we built these skyscrapers. We've got these helicopters. And we have these helicopters. Yeah, because it's like, don't you see that these things, too, are part of the problem? Like, the same, the same sort of observations we were making about Wendy's earlier, it's like, you can't dissociate, you know, these specific uh, entities from from the larger culture, like they are manifestations of this culture, uh, but uh, helicopters is maybe a better example of than uh, than the skyscrapers. Um, and there is like a weird uh, subplot of like air uh, airplane travel being disrupted. You know, Hall is all freaked out on the airplane. And the, the one guy's like, yeah. oh, there's like a one in a billion chance. And then later they see that a plane crashed because of this. And it's like it's like the movie saying, we better shape up or planes are going to die. You're not going to have Wendy's and you're not going to have airplanes. Um, which is like one of the talking points now. Like, you know, conservatives hear about the Green New Deal. Like, uh oh, they, they want to take
1: our airplanes away. Um, sort of. As if that would be the worst thing in the world. Yeah. Um, it's just uh, we already had our big discussion about uh, too much availability of things. Right. <laughs> we don't really need to go into that right. anymore. Yeah, it's not normal to be able to go wherever the fuck you want, whenever you want. Yeah. yeah. The thing about um, like the movie Up in the Air, where the whole plot is that he flies all the time, mm-hmm. and how like the thing about like a future person watching that movie and being like, "What the fuck." Mm-hmm. Um so And he's sad. Yeah, he, he's <laughs> sad about it. He can go anywhere in the world and he's like, I don't know what to do. Um so, oh, I had
0: a thought. That's that's sort of what that movie's about in a weird way. Anyway. <laughs> I'd like to read that book. Uh the book's by Walter Kern. Yeah. But I've never read it. Um uh, Coping with climate catastrophe.
1: Yeah, is another note we You're have. about that and adapting to it because I think that's. And again, this is something that would happen after the end of the film, and I, I would kind of like to go into the future and see what it's like with like American refugees in Mexico being treated like shit, and like Mexicans being like these fucking Americans coming down here and taking our <laughs> that, jobs. That's
0: called the day after the day after tomorrow.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and and so that's because you can imagine that is where it would be headed. Because um, anytime I mean, you have that was called poetry, Friday after next, <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so you can imagine, like, that's what it would would end up happening. Because anytime you have an influx of people coming in, and again, inconveniencing your regular routine, they become the bad guy, right? they become the other. Uh, but this idea of coping with climate catastrophe, we talked about it a little bit earlier, of uh, adapting, and how we were saying, like. It's happening so slowly. It'll maybe it'll become normalized, and then that's just how people live in the future, and they don't see it as being a burden or, be, or as if they've lost something, as if they're they're missing out on something. Um, but in the day after tomorrow, since everything is so sped up, it kind of left me wondering at the end of like what what do we do now? Like half the planet is uninhabitable, um, and I just had all these cool thoughts of like future explorers going into the frozen ruins of New York City and like I don't know going to Yankee Stadium and yeah, <laughs> stuff like that Times Square and, and, and that would be kind of uh, interesting but again that's like deep nerd shit like sci-fi <laughs> series thing yep. Kim Stanley Robinson book um, but this is this idea of, of, of coping with it and it kind of ties back to what you're talking about with this uh, internal versus external thing because, in a lot of ways, and I, this is just my personal feeling. I feel like humanity is going to have a much easier time coping with climate change externally than internally, especially if it's people who are you know you think of uh, Michael in First Reform who kills himself because he can't he can't deal with all this knowledge that he has. It's sort of that uh, you know Ecclesiastes knowledge is. To know things is to be depressed And the more knowledge you accumulate The the sort of sadder a bastard you become Right, and it's Um, all vanity anyways Yeah, and so In a lot of ways I think You know, we're resourceful We're kind of like cockroaches We just kind of get in where we fit in And and survive Um, So in a lot of ways I think The psychological toll right now Because we're looking at it from this Seat of such privilege of and I don't mean, like, privilege in any sort of, like, sense that drives the right-wing crazy of, like, oh, just because I'm white doesn't mean I'm... Special. But the privilege is as in you have a roof and running water and electricity and you can literally go in your car and go anywhere you want and all this kind of shit. Well, depending on your, your socioeconomic situation. Um, but the sort of psychological toll of it for people that are kind of in the know and read these books, like, you read... Um, the uninhabitable Earth, and you're just like, like it's god damn like that's so pre pre TSD. Yeah, yeah, especially if you like just the first part where he's just laying out the case. You're yeah. like, it's just a lot, mm-hmm. um, and it, you know, lingers in your head. So, it, and like I said, this is just how I feel about it. But I kind of hope it's the case that that psychological toll is much. It's much more of a burden than the actual physical action of like finding new place, new ways to live in the world in right. a new world. Yeah.
0: Uh, you mentioned uh, Wallace Wells's book and uh, something he brings up in his chapter on sort of story. I think it's called storytelling is how I think is related to this film and how basically he says when a catastrophe is theoretical enough, it Makes for an interesting film, um, or an interesting story, and so in 2004, when like you know, an inconvenient truth was like a new thing,
1: yeah, I can't remember when that came out, but it was like a, a fad, people treated it as if it were a fad, right, right, um, uh, man,
0: bear, pig, yeah, and um. Yeah, so so at that time, it was still this sort of theoretical, distant, you know, sort of conceptual thing in people's minds. Um, And so it's kind of a cool idea for a story. Um, People recognize it because it's something you hear talked about, but it's not so immediate as to actually fuck with you. You know what I'm saying? And that is, uh, again... Why first reformed I think is so special is because, I mean it's you know that was made in twenty seventeen or twenty eighteen whatever it was, um, and the, it, it's not there's no naivete about the issue at all it's like this is, this is a catastrophe that's about to happen and that sort of is happening, um, but yeah just, just I just wanted to bring up the idea of. that Wallace Wells does like as this becomes more immediate will we tell more or fewer stories about this um as it becomes less marginal will we will the immediacy make us want to perpetuate these stories or will it
1: become normal and not even worth mythologizing in any way um that's that was part of what Ghosh talks about too. Of you know what, sort of how do we tackle this in fiction, but also this idea of like why aren't more people talking about it, and why isn't it coming up in fiction? more it's, often? doesn't
0: he say something about how there's been weather events in the last ten years that two hundred years ago, if they happened, they would have been part of the literature and mythology for for the next. You know, a couple hundred years, we'd still hear about him. Wallace yeah. Wells refers to <clears throat> an event that some people believe is the inspiration for the uh, uh, flood story in the Bible. Yeah, uh, and and how maybe there actually was this sort of catastrophic flood that gets passed down through oral history and then becomes, you know, the flood. Um, anyway, that. That sort of scale of weather event is occurring all the time and it's just like it's on the news for three days and then it's gone.
1: Yeah, so you have like in the I can't remember exactly when this was, I think it was in the early 1800s, maybe in the 18th century, Um, you have the the Little Ice Age happens and it's set off by like, I think I want to say the eruption of Krakatoa was so massive that it created this, this little ice age and it comes up in the literature and there are people in You know, literary studies that look at, you know, writing from that period and try to see how it affected the way people saw the world and what they wrote about, like you were saying. Um, And we have things happening now that, for all intents and purposes, should do the same. So at the turn of the millennium uh, in 2000, Australia suffers this like apocalyptic drought that they still call the, you know, the millennium drought and it lasts for years and it's this terrible thing. Um, so you know it's it's like you're saying with the flood story it's almost biblical in its scope but it, no one ever talks about it mm-hmm. um, and you know maybe in Australia it's different but it, I would say probably not like they're aware of it but it's probably not that big of a deal to me to me it seems like the the real issue in, in a way not
0: to be reductive uh, is globalization and and thinking of yourself as, as a member of the earth as opposed to a member of the culture because, you know, the Bible is a very specific cultural product. You know what I'm saying? It's the, the Old Testament. is the, you know, the Jewish Bible. Um, and so, you know, as technology's grown and we become more, in quotes, connected and and aware of things, it's, it's easy to... You, you can see how before that technology you could call a massive flood the flood yeah you know what i'm saying whereas now you sort of recognize your place and even if it is a you know you call an apocalyptic flood that's you know it's apocalyptic for one country uh australia's like you call that a drought <laughs> right right and so we just our our minds are sort of conceptually so much more broader uh now because we, we've through technology have been encouraged to think of ourselves as like members of the earth as opposed to you know Tennesseans or or, or whatever it is or Australians um and so it's it's just a just a radically different conception um you know, and obviously that changes your mythology and your storytelling yeah. a and, great deal.
1: You know, the side effect of the, the kind of globalization fa- factor is uh, you know, Philip Larkin has this poem called Ambulances, about how you see an ambulance go by and one of your first thoughts is, thank God that's not me. Mm-hmm. And, and we have that kind of attitude of like, You know, this weekend, there's supposed to be really severe storms and tornadoes in the Midwest and Oklahoma and Arkansas and these places. And a lot of people will be like, thank God I don't live in Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. Right? Or like right now, people are like, thank God I don't live in Alabama. Um, But, you know, that's for a different force that's ruining the world. Um, Equally destructive. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, it's, it's sort of interesting to think about these massive... Weather events that in any other time would be the event, and now they're just sort of an event that are around. Think about how often it seems like every year there's another massive hurricane or typhoon, like or earthquake. Earthquake. I yeah. mean, you just had the storm that hit um, the east coast of Africa, and like it'll probably take generations um, for those places to get back to anything like a like normal, if they ever can at all. Um, and it's just kind of already out of the news cycle for people who are even you know, that would even be likely to see it there in the first place. Right. Um, but it's, well, it's Wendy's na- though. Finale of Game of Thrones? Yeah. Here they got a new chicken sandwich down at <laughs> Wendy's.
0: Oh, fuck. Um, I think that's all I got
1: and you know I don't want to say like the Game of Thrones thing I don't want to say people are stupid for watching Game of Thrones no 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 uh, I'm sure I'll binge it at some point oh no I've I've seen every episode read all the books I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna watch the finale just not right now I'll probably watch it tomorrow you're not gonna be a poser and watch it now <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you know art's important we talk about art We like the day after tomorrow yeah important pieces of, of art like the day after tomorrow D.A.T. yeah Yes, ID4 ID4 and ID4 DAT. And DAT. Uh, ID4 uh, Independence Day's bid to get at the uh, quote-unquote urban audience in the 90s, <laughs> yes. shortening, shortening it to ID4. Um, so, yeah. yeah, art is important. Read books, watch movies. I really uh, liked the tweet you sent
0: me from uh, Timothy Morton. Yeah. about the importance of literature in the literature classroom. That that there is a tweet uh, that has to argue for the importance of literature in the literature classroom is a sad,
1: uh, very 2019 yeah. thing. Timothy Morton talking about his daughter's literature class and how they do all these different assignments, but none of them involve reading literature. <laughs> it's like you make a blog post and you make, a PowerPoint. you make a PowerPoint, all this stuff, but you don't actually read anything and talk about it. So, they got to be able to
0: uh, give their uh, corporate presentations, and they
1: inevitably corporate future. That's what my favorite classes were always the ones where it was just read the book, and then we talk about it. Yeah. And everybody else, and well, not everybody else, but you know, it's about half and half. Probably of people in the class being like, "I love this class because I don't have to do anything. All we do is read and talk," and then they like fail the paper and fail the test (laughs) and all that. you know, but that's that's when you're, you know, putting on your thinking cap. Yeah, I feel... I, I hope I hope this podcast doesn't send the wrong message.
0: Uh, I, I think we can both agree that if... Uh, well, you read, read fucking books. Like, I, I don't want to be misconstrued as, like, watching movies is, is some sort of substitute for, like, environmental education. Because you can't really... You, uh, you, uh, it just seems very secondary to me. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like you, you have to, you cannot
1: rely on Hollywood for some sort of education. No, no. Um, and that's that's part of what we keep pointing out of like, Hollywood either is, uh, doesn't give a shit about these topics, or when they do tackle them, it's very clumsy, or they um, are doing so in bad faith or whatever it may be. Um, to the extent that I think, you know, first reformed is the only movie I think that we've talked about where we say all oh, they're they're kind of doing it right. Maybe uh, take shelter. Take shelter. Yeah. Um, but again, like children yeah, are Men, too. Yeah. Well. Okay. Yeah. Fair. But uh, you don't want to look for look to movies for your you know value set or anything and, like that. And and, and take shelter is, a,
0: is an awesome movie too. And but the point is, I can. From personal experience, I can say the only reason I find value in those movies is because I've sort of uh, put time into reading things that that sort of clue you into this conversation happening that allows you to understand what Schrader is doing in First Reform, than what Coron is doing in Children of Men, and what Nichols is doing in Take Shelter. And so, again, you can't you can't rely on movies for an education because to, in order to sort of really understand what's going on
1: in that movie you kind of have to already be in tune with that conversation um, you, you have to have some sort of curiosity right so I've I know people that have um, watched uh, you know First Reformed and they're like god that's really fucking weird and I'm like okay why is it weird and they're like well it's just all this shit that's happened I was like well find out why it's weird to you right. find out why it doesn't make sense and try to get well, it That's to that that, to that is great great advice to like
0: young uh, young people watching movies find out why it's weird to you don't just don't just be okay with it being weird and and here's another thing that pisses me off don't just like it because it's weird you know what i'm saying yeah. it's like that Donnie that's just, Darko <laughs> that, that's just another way of not having to think it's like oh i liked how strange it was that doesn't make any sense.
1: It's like Captain Fantastic, of like it's interesting. It's the same thing to be like, oh, it's so weird, right? Um, it's like okay, that's fine, but why does that matter? Right,
0: you're you're just fitting it into this pre-existing paradigm you have, and where it's all about your consumption of this other thing. No, if it's if it's good and meaningful to you, it should it should overlap with real things in your life, like real things you care about, real issues that the movie points to, not just like oh it. Tickled my fancy at this point, you know.
1: Um, it floated my boat.
0: It's so, and that's that's what's so boring about you. You have so many people who think like all all there is to say about a movie is I liked it or I didn't like it. Yeah. And it's like
1: sucked,
0: <laughs> sucked. Find out why it's weird to you. Find out why you didn't like it, and maybe the filmmaker wanted you to feel. Like the reasons you give for not liking it, maybe that's how the filmmaker wanted you to feel. Ask yourself, why did someone want me to feel that way? Yeah, and that's so, important. Sometimes it's better. Sometimes it's more important for you to feel bad. <laughs> you know,
1: <laughs> story of my life. Yes, uh, but a big another big part of it, I think is immediacy of people want to have the the immediate take of like good bad, you know, whatever it may be. Yeah, um, but it's. More important to spend some time with something and like have an immediate reaction. That's fine, but don't let that be your only reaction. Like yeah. think about it. And
0: and I think it, it seems almost uh, unanimous uh, in movies that I love. The first time I see them, I don't love them. My my initial reaction is one of kind of confusion or I'm a little off put by it. Uh, a good example of this is uh Magnolia by Paul Thomas Anderson. I saw it in high school and I remember thinking, like, it, what is it's this? It's a kind of an
1: alienating movie. It, it's kinda of like a Bertolt Brecht alienation effect yeah, thing. It pushes sure, you out of it. You're
0: not sure what the fuck it is you're watching. Yeah. And, and and that's how it was when I saw it, and then it sort of I just kept thinking about it, you know, like what was that? And then I watched it again and then I watched it again and I was like, This is fucking brilliant is what this is and 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 it's one of my favorite movies Uh, and that's how most of the movies I love are and so if you can sort of uh, not give in to that immediate you know not mistake your how you know how you really feel about a movie for your immediate impression of a movie uh, I think that's important And, and again this is not important because it's important how you feel about movies um because your opinion on movies matters. No, it's important because movies are a major uh, component of artistic expression in our culture, like maybe the one. Um, And so that's what's important. This is how uh, our mythologies and our ideology gets expressed, and um, it's, it's the container. And so it's not important so that you have a cool opinion on a movie at a party it's important because this is the fucking world you live in and art is just like you know one of the biggest most important aspects of being alive so I don't want to I hope we're not being I hope hope this podcast is not misconstrued as like movies for movies sake you know what I'm saying Yeah. Uh,
1: because that's just so fucking boring to me to think about it's like if it's 800 AD you study Bible exegesis because that's your mode of understanding the world like this is the document you have that most directly reflects what your society is trying to be like or what your society thinks is trying to be like and now we have films right We we look at you know, what does our culture value? Well what are people making and watching? Like what is succeeding? Like what what were we putting forward as being representative of our culture? Why is this succeeding? Yeah.
0: Why is this weird? Why Why is Avengers bad
1: why is Avengers in game the biggest movie of all time, right? Like why does this matter? I think it's very interesting. Maybe we could we could do an episode on big sort of Marvel superhero movies.
0: But I think it's interesting that they have come back or that, the, that superhero movies are so big um, when it's maybe kind of the most cliche, kind of over-the-top hero narrative there is. And, of course, they all try to be gritty and, you know, they show the flaws and the weaknesses of, of the heroes, and that's supposed to lend it some credibility. But ultimately, those things are just to uh, reinforce, you know, the heroes. And I think it's really interesting at this point in history when everyone is... I say everyone. uh, When people are... A lot of people feel so powerless and subject to bureaucracy and the political machine that is just fucking everyone harder than it ever has before uh, that we take refuge in this sort of Kind of, in a lot of ways, childish mythology of like the hero saving the day. Yeah. Uh, anyway, um, all that to say is, I think it's, I think it's very important to to uh, watch movies and and understand them. But like I said, I hope, I hope this is our imp- our subject of movies is not misconstrued as like fandom only. Of course, we're fans of, of movies yeah. for sure. But, but that in and of itself and Isolated from a larger context of, of sort of intellectual conversations And uh, you know uh, that To me that just seems very boring And pointless
1: Yeah and so I mean And we I think it's important to sort of clarify that And that's just kind of What you're talking about is sort of a, a frame of looking at the world And it's kind of How you and I Talk about every like we we're talking about Wendy's Right we we're sort of talking about Wendy's in the same way that we're talking about this movie or about climate change policy or whatever, it's just sort of a way of looking at the world and it it gets a bad rap as being like, sad bastard viewpoint and, and you know, all this vanity and all that kind of stuff, but there there's an inherent kind of value in that of uh, not being cynical for the sake of being cynical uh, but for the sake of like knowing in the back of your head, having that nagging thought of like why is this meaningful? How could this be improved? All that sort of stuff. How can I understand this better? What does this really mean? Um, trying to get at some sort of, you know, authentic being, if you can even do that, of like, um, you find yourself watching, you know, marathoning Game of Thrones, and you're like, why am I doing this? Like, am I getting joy from... Does this spark joy? <laughs> right? That sort of thing. Um, right. Well, and, and it's you always hear
0: entertainment critiqued as a distraction yeah and what's so fucked up to think about is like a distraction from what yeah like what is there that I'm being distracted from and I think that's a good that's a good like mantra you know what am I being distracted what am I being distracted from is there anything to be
1: distracted from I think there is well and people will say I like X because it's true to life it's like well if it's true to life why do you need that to experience that kind of feeling, right? Mm. Like, why do you need um, Thanos to kill half of all the living things in the universe for you to feel sadness at loss, (laughs) or whatever it may be? Uh, Why do you need Spider-Man to disappear for you to be like, oh, now I I truly understand what it means to lose as a human being? Mm -hmm. Um, And it's like there's a discrepancy between
0: what's actually happening in our lives and like how we experience what's happening in our lives and that's what's so important about art is because art can kind of uh, put up you know a character's experience of life or wh- what happens in a character's life in the terms of how they experience it and so it's it feels more true you know you know sometimes you read a book and it feels you know a fictional story can feel more real than a news story, you know? Yeah. Uh, it feels truer. Um, and I think that's what's happening is you're sort of translating kind of external physical reality into emotional reality, which is how everyone
1: experiences the
0: world. Anyway, read fucking books.
1: The end. And you know, it kind of ties back to the day after tomorrow because you know, it's a perfectly fine movie if you want to watch it. If you're into action films, it's you know worth yeah, a watch. Yeah, I saw it when I was 17. I was like, cool, and then I went to McDonald's, <laughs> yeah, you know. yeah, which is yeah, and then you went to Wendy's. Um, <laughs> yeah. so yeah, I felt strangely compelled to go to Wendy's. <laughs> so, so this film has those kind of enlightening little moments, like the little adre- presidential address at the end and stuff like that. But for the most part, it's designed to make you see this kind of everyman character of like oh, I I know what my relationship with my father is like, so when Jake Gyllenhaal and Dennis Quaid hug, then I feel warm inside because they're going to be okay. Um, But, you know, don't lose sight of this bigger picture of what it's saying about uh, the Earth and about climate catastrophe. And how it's using that sentiment.
0: Because, I mean... Yeah, I mean... When something is so clearly sentimental, the same way we talked about the dog in uh, American Sniper, yeah. sometimes your your heartstrings are not being tugged on sincerely. You yeah. know, they are being used to get at other things, and this is I mean, surely to God, anyone who's listening to this gets this <laughs> you know?
1: yeah but I feel like you know most people don't like there's a lot of the emotional manipulation type stuff will just kind of fly under the radar and it, it accomplishes its goal um, or at least on first viewing and then on a second watch or after they think about it for a while people yeah. will be like oh wait a minute that was manipulative um, and I also think that sometimes that's done purposefully but also kind of in good faith so like later on if we end up watching um, Oakja. The the Bong Joon-ho movie um, that's got a lot of like emotional manipulative manipulative stuff in it emotionally manipulative stuff Um, and I've had I've heard people say like that's what they didn't like about the films like I don't like how it was trying to get me to you know feel this certain kind of way and it's like yeah but it's doing it for a good purpose I think trying to push you in that direction and it's doing it in a very kind of ham-fisted way but yeah sentiment uh, is only bad when it's when it's done in bad faith to try to trick you into feeling it, you yeah. know, something wrong. With like, something. Don't you love America? <laughs> right. Oh, if you love America, get out here and kill these Brown people. Yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, it's the day after tomorrow. Uh, we're going to have a, a hard shift for next week. Uh, we're going to be talking about 2011's Melancholia directed Lars by LBT. Oh, uh, Lars von Trier. Um, so a pretty big shift I might you, have you ever seen seeking a friend for the end of the world? I have not but I, I hear good things. It's sort of like the office version essay comedy office version because yeah. Steve krills in it but it, it's sort of a similar ish storyline but you know way, executed way differently okay. but we'll talk about melancholia and um, I feel like a lot of these conversations will come back especially this idea of dealing with the existential angst, in the film literally existential angst yeah. of, uh, you know, impending doom, um, so we'll talk about that, uh, we didn't really talk about it, but we didn't have a show last week, because Mother's Day kind of threw a monkey wrench in everything
0: yeah, and I, we thought sort of in keeping with the theme of
1: m- Mother Mother's
0: uh, we should skip, or maybe I was just late and couldn't do it, no, and I was already
1: kind of like doing a lot of other stuff and so Will's like, Oh, I can't make it today and I was like, Oh, that's fine. Yeah. I, I did not I was not the least bit upset. I was like, that's perfectly okay. Um so now we're back on schedule, on the road again, rolling. So next week we'll be talking about melancholia. Same bat time, same bat channel. Uh follow us at Twitter at Anthropod Tweets. Be available on SoundCloud, Spotify iTunes uh, so get it while it's hot, and uh, yeah. You yeah. Know, parting thoughts.
0: Uh, do you know why farmers always win a lot of awards? Why? Because they're always outstanding in their field. <laughs> uh. <laughs> good luck transitioning. Good night and good luck. <laughs>